that all it takes is, is <laughs> listen, somebody to go. Yeah, that <laughs> this will get snipped. Don't worry. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to the show. This is The Film File, episode 28, which is actually in dog years, very old. That's like double a dog's life normally. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm Lee Ford, and as ever, I'm joined by... Andy Beacon. How are we doing, Andy? It's been a, it's been a week, and as you were just saying before we started recording, Groundhog Day set in. It's Groundhog Week. <laughs> and as I say, it's been a week since we last recorded, and Groundhog Day's just set in. <laughs> Uh, I woke up this morning to the sound of Cher on the radio and I uh, thought, wow, this is familiar. <laughs> but now it comes around so fast because all the days are just blaring into one now. So it's it's trying to find something different to focus on to make each week stand out. And, you know, we, we have our different films that we look at each week. So this is like one of the things that keeps some spark of interest. But I'm also like exploring like TV shows. I've just started rewatching MASH from the beginning. There's a great series because we're going to be talking about, um, in our deep dive, we're going to be talking about Tremors. Uh, what we're yep. going to do, we're going to have a little segue into into movies that have become TV series on the on the back end of that. MASH is fantastic. It's it's yep. it's still the, the go-to best comedy series ever. I mean, not necessarily the funniest, but probably the best written and consistent uh, and a series that lasted longer than the, the war it was depicting. Did, when you watched it, does it have the laugh track? Uh, the earlier seasons don't. It was around about the mid-seasons that they added it in and then they removed it again towards the last few seasons, didn't they? Yeah, well, in the, they got when some, the BBC... They got a lot it, of backlash. They never put the laugh track on it. In the States, it had a laugh track, but in, in the UK, they showed it without and and when i saw it a few years later uh well a few, actually a couple of years ago it was on on one of the comedy channels and they got the laugh track and boy i hated it i couldn't watch it i found it absolutely unwatchable it's not a laugh out loud kind of show it's no. amusing it's wry entertainment a laugh track is just so fake mm. in that kind of comedy because it's trying to tell you oh you should be laughing at this point it's like well i'm, I'm amused by it but it's not a laughable situation because there's quite a lot underlying themes of like trauma and tragedy throughout the series yeah you, it balances it beautifully the same way that the film did and i think the film should i, th I think we should um, do a deep dive on the film at some point that's a great idea i was thinking about it when we're talking about the tv series and and how you associate the roles with the tv counterpart so shall we make that next week's deep dive next week's deep dive why not let's uh deep dive into mashing so i'm already mashing it up so this week we're going to be looking at our our regular deep dive as we said which is tremors and he's going to be talking about his film classic that he's neglected to see even though i i could swear blind that you and i saw hugo together <laughs> nope i have my reasons why i didn't watch it when it came out i i could have sworn blind that we watched it and as ever we've got a roundup of the news and that's what you get with the film file and as i said first andy what have you got news for us remembering that we live in groundhog day yeah so living in groundhog day means that we have to start off with release date shuffles okay because that's what every every episode has started off with that. And this time, Candyman has moved from September to October because uh, Halloween Kills has shuffled as well right. by a year. Oh, has it? I, I thought Halloween Kills <laughs> was still on a release for this year. October 2021. They've dropped the first trailer for it this yes. week, which is a very much a tease trailer. Um, and it was on that that it confirms October 2021 rather than this year, which means that the other Halloween film that was due to follow it will be coming out the following year instead, instead of next year. So that's a huge jump. There was a, a statement sent out by John Carpenter, a big letter saying, you know, in the shifting times that we live in, yada, yada, yada. And really like saying, you know, 
this is a film that needs to be released in October, and rather than delaying it until like November, it makes more sense to give it a year. Yeah, okay, I, I, I can. You know, you can't argue with any of these things. You might be disappointed, but in all honesty, you just can't argue with it. But it, yeah, it opens up the October slots for Candyman which uh, will probably do well over the horror season, assuming cinemas are reopened. Uh, speaking of like, it, a film's doing well. You've seen the news of what was the top film in the US this weekend? I have indeed. Um, and to say now that probably Disney are killing it, uh, with that <laughs> and Hamilton premiere on Disney+, Plus, which brought in a, apparently hundreds of thousands of new uh, new devotees to Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I mean, the, the reports say that they saw a spike in their subscription um, with Hamilton. But yeah, Empire Strikes Back got its reissue across the US in whatever drive-ins and cinemas were actually open. And uh, I mean, it, the, the end figures for it for the weekend have not been reported yet, but yesterday it was tracking at 500,000 for the weekend. Which, given that the only new fi- the new film which is taking second place, Relic, it was tracking for two hundred thirty six thousand. It shows that an, an old film has brought some people back. However, before we get excited on that, it's worth noting that um, the same time last year, Spider Man Far From Home pocketed forty five million for the same three yeah. days. So it's th- this is what I was saying about like you know the reason why our cinema hasn't opened is because the old films bring in some audience but not enough to sustain the business. And 500,000 to 45 million for this time of year is, it's a huge drop. Do you think as a tester for introducing people back into cinemas, that's what cinema chains will do? Or will they just open on a, on a blank canvas of a new release? You know, like the aforementioned, we always mention Tenant every week. But do you think that's what, what cinemas will, will do with that? Yeah, I mean, we've already got examples of it in the UK. I mean, Odeon have opened with some classic films on limited shows and um, Showcase have done the same. They've been showing some classic ones. So try to try to get people to come. It's more to get people to come in and go look around and go, oh, actually, they've taken some good restrictions here and this makes me feel comfortable. And then the word of mouth will start to spread that, yes, yeah, cinemas have taken the COVID situation seriously and they have put things in place to make you feel comfortable and safe in that environment. So it's more just for a, a PR kind of thing to entice people to come back before you get your tenants. I know that yeah, we're, we're talking about that when it does come to reopen, we won't be opening literally on the day that tenant comes out. We'll be opening maybe a week earlier to give us some lead in uh, to try to get our own customers back. And we will be looking at older content. But it's it's still all up in the air. Right. I still don't have any confirmation. Uh, it's it's also interesting. I've been mean, running off the back of the figures that Empire Strikes Back has taken and how much money films are taking this year. I decided to do some research into Box Office Mojo's um, list for the worldwide box office for 2020. And, uh, you know, Fantasy Island is in the top ten. Really? For a film that, that actually everybody said it failed? <laughs> yep. And The Grudge. The Grudge is in there. Blimey. Fantasy Island is at number nine. The Grudge is at number eight. Top film for the year, box office-wise, Bad Boys for Life. Wow. Followed by Sonic the Hedgehog and then Doolittle. And everybody wrote Doolittle off as being the biggest disaster of the year. And and this is the world that we live in, where they're the top three films of the year. <laughs> How I said every week feels like Groundhog Day? <laughs> yeah, um, so every week feels like Groundhog Day. So uh, release date shuffles. Um... <laughs> hey, have you heard there's going to be a, a Groundhog Day TV series in the works? Yeah, I heard about that. Um, I'm not sure how far they can play that joke, to be honest with you. <laughs> not a, Well, I mean, I guess the only way you can do it this is me with my writer head on, is that every episode is a new day. <laughs> every episode is the same story, just with one little change. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I never go, I never want to write these things off until 
I've seen it, but you know, Groundhog is so beloved. But then, hey, who would have thought that Mash would have made a great TV series? Carry on, sorry. Exactly. Um, so Jurassic World 3 resumed filming, as we were reporting on last week. But there's been some reports going round that a COVID case on set caused it to shut down again. Right. Well, this is going to happen, isn't it? I mean, films will start production again. If someone tests positive on the crew, that means either everyone's got to be, be tested all again. That person will be put into quarantine. And, and that could be anybody, director, crew member, uh, actor, star, you know, anyone on it. Uh, and it's going to mean that that a film is going to be on on a shutdown. There was a Michael Bay film that's shooting at the moment that has been shut down again for health reasons. And this is going to happen across the board. And, you know, if someone gets sick, it's going to affect production. But the idea now, uh, and James Cameron's sort of trialling it with, with the Avatar sequels, is to have everybody in a bubble before they start filming. So everyone's quarantined two weeks or so before and, and see if they've got signs, constant testing. And then, then filming resumes. It's still, it's still working it out as we go through. However, the follow-up news with the Jurassic World shooting stopping is that it was all a load of nonsense. Oh, okay. After all that, you made me say all those things, <laughs> and then it was a load of nonsense. A spokesman for the studio have confirmed that the rumours were completely unfounded and untrue. But it was Michael Bay. Michael Bay started that rumour, and uh, the shootings continued. However, he did say he did go on to, and I quote, say on this incredible project. So at that point, he's definitely lying about something because those two words don't feel right when talking about the Jurassic World films. Incredible project? Mm. I, th- I think you've, you've been once bitten by a Tyrannosaurus twice, shy. <laughs> uh, yeah, this this shows that at this day and age, and this is something that we discuss off uh, quite frequently, that you can't trust the news until something comes official, until an official source who's been named comes out and says something. Do not trust any speculation going on. So Jurassic World is is still filming. It's been confirmed that it's not shut down. There are no COVID cases on there. Everything's fine. So let's have some news which we know is definite news. There's still just speculation on some things, but the speculation coming from, you know, actual people involved, such as Tron 3 could be getting greenlit soon. You see, that would work now with the Disney Plus platform. Because we know it has a is a rocky a rocky cinema history. Disney Plus would be the perfect perfect platform. That's apparent. That's apparently what the idea is to use Disney Plus as the outlet for it. There's a fair bit of buzz around it. I mean, Jared Leto was connected to this project back in 2017 before it got shelved. In recent weeks, Michael Lieb, the president of music and soundtracks at Disney, has spoken directly about the project on a podcast interview. He's stated that he's had a meeting with Daft Punk's manager about their potential involvement. And he's additionally said that whilst there's no director attached, they are definitely hopeful that Joseph Kaczynski will return to direct it. Who is currently finishing off uh, the Top Gun. Finishing off Top Gun. For for those of us who've held out for this third film since, like, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed the second film on the big screen. I can't say that I, I enjoyed it. I can't say that I loved it. It's... I, I never really bought into the Tron universe uh, the way that uh, a lot of other people did. That's not me dissing it. It's just yeah, it, it just didn't connect with me in, in such a way. This this makes me makes me quite giddy with excitement, especially if they can manage to secure Daft Punk, who are reportedly are quite interested in getting involved uh, because their music melded so perfectly with the film that it seems like it seemed like a bizarre choice to go in a different direction on a future film. So let's see what comes of this. But, you know, at least we're starting to get some news from within because there has been speculation from wild rumours. But this is the first time that someone actually involved in at Disney has commented on it and suggested that 
things are moving forward. Anything else that's not a wild rumour? Uh, Batman getting a HBO Max spin-off. Now, this, I know for a fact, isn't a uh, a wild rumour because they have attached not only Matt Reeves, who is currently directing the Batman right now, because that's been uh, hopefully gone back into production, uh, but they've also attached Terence Winter to showrun on it. Creator of Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, he wrote uh, Wolf of Wall Street. He wrote the very disappointing yeah. vinyl for, for Martin Scorsese and Mick Jagger, which was disappointing in a lot of ways uh, and disappointing. It didn't get picked up for a second season after they spent all that money on it. But yeah, Terence Winter, um, he kind of knows his chops. Interesting take this, because from what I'm gathering, the HBO Max spin-off is kind of going to be sort of the Gotham cop side of things. That's what I'm hearing. Is is that what you know? It's got a very similar setup to um, the the Gotham TV series that we had from another network over recent years, which it focuses on the Gotham PD, the corruption within it, and the corruption in the city that basically meant that crime was running rife. So it, it all, all is very familiar, but it's going to be set within the Batman universe. There's no confirmation yet whether there will be crossovers of direct characters between the two. Uh, but given the given the prestige that something like HBO has and the fact that they only do like eight to 12 episodes per season, I think there's more likelihood of some crossover with the film than there would be if it was a different network. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can, if contracts work, you can bring James Gordon into it. You can launch a villain in the TV series that then you can pay off in, in, a, in a further sequel, if we, I'm assuming that the Batman's going to make a gazillion dollars. Yeah. I mean, the interesting side note to this is that this is another bit of news that, again, dismisses some false speculation that had been widely reported as though it was news over recent months. Really? You surprised me. The internet and all that. And that is a certain group of fans were so convinced that Zack Snyder was going to be helming all the DC content for HBO and it would all be Snyder's vision and it would all be Snyder's direction. Guess what? It isn't. Can I just put a caveat on that? We already know that HBO Max are looking to produce a Dark Justice League series with J.J. Yep. Abrahams' uh, Bad Robot on yep. board. And there's even rumour of J.J. Abrahams uh, launching another John Constantine series. I mean, that is just a rumour. But it's, yeah, let, let's not get, get too silly about this. It's looking more and more likely that Snyder is just getting to finish his Just Arse League and then that's it. It's just to wrap up his era. Done. It's gone. Because everyone else is getting to explore different DC avenues. I mean, this is a question that's going to hit every every cop show, not just one about, about Gotham City. And, and then I think why where that might have a, a distinct advantage over ev- everything else is, is the portrayal of, of police officers and, and cops yeah. in, in, in American series. With the way that the US is right now, and, and I think on, on the brink of, of, of major change, hopefully on the brink of major change, and the way that the police yeah. are viewed, I think, I think how how cop series are, are looked at, it's going to it's going to change television. And and you know they always say the staple of, of, of TV is, is is cops and docs. You know they're the two winning formulas. It'd be interesting to see how cop shows cop shows have to develop to, to the current climate, and if, and if at all that they will. The long running cops series got cancelled. Right. And whilst it's being given a new se- uh, another season, uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine is being reevaluated. Yes, Andy Samberg has basically said that they re- really need to consider whether a comedy about a police department is right in this environment. Yeah, 
Personally, I think that it is. I think we need to have that because um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, in amongst the comedy, has done some very poignant episodes. There was the episode where Terry gets stopped for walking down the street by a, a racist cop and it tackled the racism head on. Right. I, I think that we need the light entertainment, which can tackle the issues from a light entertainment point of view. So I think out of everything, Brooklyn Nine-Nine maybe can sit comfortably, but they're reviewing it at the moment. I mean, this is a show that has been ca- almost cancelled a few times anyway. So it's only a matter of time before it has a reason why they end it. I mean, the thing about Gotham, and did you ever read the Greg Rucker series? Uh, I didn't which know. Is fantastic, which is kind of kind of the genesis for the Gotham TV series, the, the Gotham PD books um, were fantastic. Uh, Greg Rucker did it. Ed Brubaker was involved in it. It was a very gritty, different portrayal of Gotham City. You know, Gotham City is a corrupt city. We know that from 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 the books. You know, there's there's an opportunity to explore a corrupt police department with with the one shining knight, which is James Gordon. So, uh, yeah. you know, I, it, it can go in a completely different direction and probably have have more truth to it than than, than we anticipate. But it's interesting. You know, it's, it's a perfect tie in with the Batman movie whenever that will arrive. Uh, Chicken Run sequel, which we, re- we reported on last week. Yeah, we reported that uh, it's in production. Um, Mel Gibson won't be returning. However, it looks like another member of cast won't be returning. Julia Sawala has been dumped from the film too, which she revealed herself on social media. She voiced the female lead of Ginger in the original film. And how she found out is she got a letter which basically told her that she was too old for the voice. Now, this is the voice of a character that is supposed to be older than what it was and a when she did it anyway. Yes, and a chicken. She went on record to record herself doing the voice and sent it to the studio to ask them to reconsider, only to get another response back that effectively said, yeah, that sounds good, but we've made our choice goodbye. Oh, that's disappointing. Netflix and Aardman are under fire for ageism, because they're basically just wanting to kick these original cast members out for age reasons. Apparently, she found out this news before Mel Gibson was dropped. Now, Mel Gibson getting dropped was for more than just how old he is reasons. But it feels to me that maybe they were getting rid of everyone so they could back up dropping Mel, even though they're dropping Mel clearly for the fact that he's not he's not a politically correct kind of character at this point in time. Also kind of speculating that that character, the Mel Gibson character, and I can't remember the character's name, Rocky. Rocky is, is coming back for this sequel because from what we hear, it's going to be sort of a, a chicken heist movie. I don't think we've heard the end on this and I think that there might be um, a lot of battles going on behind the scenes. We don't know if any of the cast are coming back at this point in time. But, you know, in, in a day and age when we get a fourth Toy Story film with Tom Hanks still voicing a character or we get Incredibles films which have the same voice cast, it seems bizarre to turn around and say, oh, yeah, in this animated movie, we don't want you to provide the same voice that you did in the past. The only thing I can I can think of is that they're looking for a bigger name to, to lead the movie in. And, and Aardman is not known for big names. Aardman is known no. for its delightful and, and, and very unique animation style. Well, yep. keep me posted on this one. From one bird to another, and Bird Box 2 is apparently on the way. Really? I've not heard that one. Apparently the first film according to their own mysterious figures that no one can see and are archived somewhere in a mysterious temple with lo- loads of people in hooded yeah, robes. Ninjas, lots of ninjas. Netflix have, like, had a very, very good success with the first film. And now the writer of the book, Josh Malaman, is promoting his sequel book, which is due out pretty rapidly. And that's called Mallory. And he's commented that things are moving on adapting that to Netflix as well. The book 
The story in the book picks up the story 10 years later and follows the Mallory's character's further journey. Whether or not it's just the author pitching his book and trying to build it up. But if Netflix were keen on how well the first film performed, then it's clear that they're going to at least give it a second outing. I mean, after all, they're giving um, Bright a second film. So I, I think they'll pretty much give everything at least two shots before they'll pull the plug on it. Because I know Bird Box, it, it seemed everyone was buzzed about it. And then everyone who watched it didn't really like it. I, I didn't mind it. I, I liked it. I didn't think it was it was the second coming of, uh, of, of post-apocalyptic films. Um, I liked it. I, I thought it was interesting. I, the only thing I kept referencing all the way through is that my kid would never have sh- uh, shut up for a minute and would have wandered <laughs> off after leaving him in the boat within two seconds of me turning my back and, and uh, we'd be toast. And that was my only my only thought running entirely through the movie. I know I thought it was an enjoyable movie. You know, Netflix, you've, you've got you've, you've to give them their dues. When they launch a film like Old Guard, you know, the, the chances are that on a, on a Friday night in a, in, a, in a lockdown situation, that half a billion people will watch that movie, which will do more to raise its awareness than it would having to push it in, in the cinemas. You know, a lot of films that are absolutely rife for Netflix to, to revisit as, as sequel territory if they've, if they've bought into it. So I, I, I'm game for it if it's, a, if it's a good movie, and it always comes back down to that. And, and talking of sequels that we didn't know were coming. Have you heard this, uh, that the author of Ready Player One is uh, launching a sequel? <laughs> Ernest Klein's announced that Ready Player Two will arrive in book form in on November the 24th. What a great title. That is such a good title, to be honest. See, I, I, I was never enamoured by Ready Player One, the book or the film. So I'm just anticipating a bunch of nostalgic articles snip, snipped from issues of Looking and Retro Gamer cobbled <laughs> together with a bland, uninspired plot and some of the most cliched characters you can imagine, with the occasional reference to a song by Rush or ZZ Top, just to make you go, oh, I remember ZZ Top, oh, I remember Rush, and, and be cast into, a, cast into a fake illusion that you actually enjoyed the book because you were, you were actually enjoying the remembering of films things from your childhood. So you're saying you didn't like it? <laughs> I didn't like it, no. The, 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 book is, uh, the book and the film are the Peter Kay of books and film. And Peter Kay is notorious for his stand-up routine just being talking about things in the past. Hey, remember them? Remember what's it? Remember what, hey? Utter garbage. It <laughs> doesn't, doesn't do anything for me. I preferred the film to, to the book, to be honest. The only bit of the film that I thought was creative was the recreation of the Overlook Hotel for The Shining Element. And it's also Spielberg's biggest film, I think, since Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull nonsense that came out. <laughs> Crystal Skull nonsense. That's a, that's a good way of describing that. That's 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 the full title for it from now on. But yeah, I mean, it, the book will do well. I mean, the first book has a huge following. Loads of people love it. I'm I'm in the minority in that I I read it and I was just like, what have I just wasted my time on? And no doubt there will be a film adaptation because it did so well and it's guaranteed, isn't it? It is. And if after it's done all that that money, then clearly it's going to pull in a. It's got a, a great opportunity. Of Spielberg coming back saying. Let's do let's do a sequel. So yeah, while we're on the subject of uh, nostalgic things uh, getting like brought to life, how about another Peter Pan ad- adaptation? Because there's not enough Peter Pan adaptations. No, I, the I think they might have done one or two. I'm not sure. In the last couple of years, I think you might find <laughs> one or two. Yes, I've heard about this. Um, there was a disastrous uh, Pan movie that came out a few years ago, which nobody went to see with Hugh Jackman in it. Yeah. Uh, previous to that. There was the Australian one, which wasn't too bad. Yeah. 
Um, but every now and then there seems to be a Peter Pan movie. There was, of course, Hook, Spielberg's Hook, which yeah. is the one Spielberg film that I have never seen. I, I quite enjoy Hook. But anyway, um, we've got Peter Pan and Wendy to look forward to, which is a live action adaptation of the Disney version. Because this is the world that we live in now that every Disney animation is getting redone as a live action. David Lowry, who made Pete's Dragon and The Old Man and the Gun, is directing and co-wrote it with Tony Halbrooks. You see, I like uh, David Lowry as a director and what he did with Pete's Dragon, which wasn't a big success, but was a great take on a... On it reinvented a, it. It, it gave it something new. You, you, the fact it was called Pete's Dragon was was a barely a, an aside to the to the film work, which bore no no relationship to it. I thought Pete's Dragon was a fantastic film and, yeah. and, and a great take. Uh, and that idea of doing something different as opposed to Lion King, which we always reference, uh, with, with that catalogue stuff and bringing an absolute breath of fresh air to it. So if he can, I'm, I'm quite interested to see what, what Lowry can do with it because he's a, he's a director that I, I like a lot. It was initially rumoured to just be a Disney Plus outing, but the word on the streets is that it's now aiming for a cinema release <laughs> when cinemas open. But, you know, casting is still being finalised and they're still talking to people. But who would you cast as the fiendish hook? Because this is a role that has had people like Dustin Hoffman, Jason Isaacs, Christopher Walken has been Hook in the past. Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. So in this version... We get Will Smith. <laughs> Jude Law is being courted for the role. I like Jude Law. I once got described as an ugly Jude Law, so I, I've got an affinity to him. He's got an air about him as well that I think could make for an intriguing Hook approach. Same way that Dustin Hoffman kind of made the role his, his own. When he did it, I can see Jude Law really like making something of it. So fingers crossed he signs on that line. I'll wait for that. Quickly moving on. So we've spoken about the Wolfman story many, 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 many times. And it, as it's been building up all momentum. And now it's been confirmed what we speculated would happen. That Lee Wannell, who was brought on board to write it, is now going to be directing it as well. That is a good choice after all the... Great choices he made bringing the Invisible Man back. And they've already talked about wanting to do something different with the Universal monster characters. He's a, yeah. he's a great choice. We've got Ryan Gosling starring as the Wolfman, which instantly gives it a different vibe and a different feel. Yeah, I think, I think all the choices they're making, Blue Mouse are making on this, seem to be the right ones. And there's still a big consideration that they're going to dust off the Bride of Frankenstein script as well which we mentioned in a previous show we'd already like reported when he was attached as uh, the story creator which he will then pass his story notes over to lauren shuka bloom and rebecca angelo who will then adapt the script from his story but it was obvious that once his name was involved that he was going to get used as director and sticking with Bloomhouse, and they in addition are producing an adaptation of stephen king's story mr harrigan's phone for netflix i've not read this one it's from a it's from a because he, he turns out a bazillion books a year. I don't know how Stephen <laughs> King does it. I mean, I'm writing a screenplay which I'm supposed to have written in three weeks and six weeks in. I'm just on to Act Three, but Steven Spielberg turnout is huge. And this came out as part of a anthology that came out at the beginning of the year, which, from all I know, is supposed to be very, very good, a, a, a good worthy read. But I don't know this particular story. Any idea on what the plot is? Yes, uh, it's a young boy who befriends an older billionaire who lives in his small town neighbourhood. They bond over the man's first iPhone as the young boy teaches this old guy how to make it. And then the man dies, but the boy discovers that not everything's dead and gone and finds himself able to communicate with the old man by leaving voicemails on the iPhone that was buried with him. It sounds an interesting premise. 
uh, and with Stephen King, which of course is is on a roll again. Everyone seems to have rediscovered King. Yeah, it came from the If It Bleeds collection of four short That's stories by King, uh, which I've not got around to what reading myself because it only came out this April. If I was going on a beach holiday, I always have a tendency to get take a Stephen King book with me because they're always such a, uh, a, a decent read. But as I'm not going on holiday, I might just have to read it in the garden instead. Well, normally Stephen King books uh, I pick up for my mum for either a birthday or Christmas. And this came out on April the 21st. My mum's birthday was before that, so it was a bit too late. <laughs> They're so she's Christmas. not she's not got the book yet, which means that I've not got the book yet. It's only five more lockdown months till Christmas, so you're fine. This this will be a Christmas read for me. Well, it'll be a New Year's read once my mum's read it. Did I tell you every day is well, like Groundhog Day? I I, I I genuinely think that I, I'm generally hoping that my mum doesn't listen to the podcast because now I've just spoiled you're her. Just giving it all present. away. <laughs> so anyway, it's Groundhog Day, which means that um, film releases have been shuffled again. <laughs> This one's going to run and run. We found the title for today's today's show. <laughs> it's it's Groundhog Week. Um, and to round off the news, so San Diego Comic Con obviously isn't happening this year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But in its place is the virtual Comic Con at Home event, which is scheduled to run in a little under two weeks' time. Wednesday, the, July the 22nd to Sunday, July the 26th. This will be free and open to everyone to watch online. And they've now released on their website the full schedule of film and TV events and talks which will be taking place. So you can now start to plan out which talks you want to watch, which talks you're not that bothered with and watch on catch up if you can do. That's fantastic. So they're going to be covering things like the there's going to be a CBS All Access Star Trek talk. There's going to be His Dark Materials for HBO and BBC. Uh, Utopia from Amazon Prime. Uh, Kaczynski's got a panel. His panel's being shared with Trevor Rowe and Rodriguez for a three creator directors talk panel there's charlie's theron going to be talking the evolution of a badass fear the walking dead and all the walking dead stuff obviously get a huge amount of significance on the friday you've got robot chicken samurai jack talks loads of geeky fan culture talks and specials and little bits and pieces so go do a search online find the website for the comic con at home and get yourself ready to watch that when it's streaming over that few days because in the absence of full cons, we can all get involved this time. Well, you know, we've talked about sort of the, the darker side of, of this pandemic and, the, you know, the more disappointing elements of it in people's behaviour, uh, the way governments have acted, etc. But there's been these these nuggets of, of generosity and people sharing and people giving that have, have, have been, you know, have come organically. And that's one way that the industry sort of given back. I think that's fantastic. I think that's that sort of thing that... that, that keeps a little bit of faith in in geekdom for want of a better yeah. term that's great and that's it for the news so if you've got any interesting tidbits you want to talk about or you want to get in touch with the show you can do so over on twitter at filmfile uk and we'd love to hear from you and if you've enjoyed the show and you've not subscribed then please do you know we want to keep the show going we're still in its infancy we've we're coming up to almost a year since we started it. You know, we're always looking to build uh, a, a bigger audience. If you like it, pass it on to your friends, subscribe, you know, keep the film file going, and eventually we can start looking at expanding because we've got some ideas we'd like to do as well. So every week for the last few weeks, Andy has been running through a list of classic films that he has missed 
for whatever reason, uh, hibernation, he's been hunted in, by Sandmen. <laughs> we just don't know. And this is a film that, as I, as I said at the top end of the show, I thought you and I had seen this, and that's Martin Scorsese's Hugo. And I'm really surprised that, that it, it wasn't me and you, which, who did I yeah. see it with? Because um, <laughs> I, I, I know I certainly saw it. So it's a 2011 film. As I said, uh, directed by Martin Scorsese, a bit of a change for Scorsese, a bit of a change for Scorsese, um, because well, it's it's his first, and I usually use the term lightly, his a, a children's film or a, a young adults film based on Brian Selznick's uh, The Invention of Hugo Cabret. It's the story of a boy who lives alone in a railway station in Paris in the 1930s, only to become embroiled in a mystery surrounding his late father's automation and the pirating filmmaker George S. Millet. Uh, Hugo was Scorsese's first film and he shot it in 3D and he found it to be an interesting experience because actors were more upfront emotionally and their slightest moves, their slightest intentions were picked up much more precisely. That was the reviews on it. It received 11 Academy Awards including Best Picture and it's a real, real oddity. It wasn't a massive, massive film even though it, it made its money back. It's a film that I think you either love or you hate out of the Scorsese canon. But that's my take on it. Andy, tell us what you thought of Hugo. So before I tell you what I thought, as I said towards the beginning of the episode, I had my reasons why I think I avoided this film when it came out. And the primary reason was that it was overhyped about the 3D. And 3D for me was getting very, very tiresome. I was hating it. I was getting so annoyed at things getting put into 3D that even when Scorsese turns around and says, I'm filming in 3D, it's like, do you have to? So I was angered at this film for being in 3D. In addition, it was heavily trailered around Chloe Grace Moretz being in it. Well, she was and the biggest name to a degree, wasn't And she? she's not good. She's not a good actress. She was great in Kick-Ass, but everything else she'd been in, she's very flat. And I'm real. I'm still not sold on her now. I still don't think she's got any talent. So those two elements combined were like, well, if she's going to be such a focus of this film, that's going to really feel duff to me. And so I was put off watching it. Now that I've seen it, I'm still not sold on Moretz. But thankfully, she's not in the film much. She's not the key character. And whilst there are some moments that were in the film to show off the 3D that stand out when you watch it in 2D, it's like, oh, well, that was supposed to be something near flying out towards the screen. Woo. But... It didn't bother me because I got drawn completely into the tale. And as a lover of film, this is a film lover's film, especially due to the fact it explores one of the pioneers of the early days of effects technology in the industry, albeit from the viewpoint of the fictional Hugo who befriends him. You see, that was the element that I didn't know when I went in to see it. I didn't realise yeah. that it was a love letter to filmmaking. I thought it was a boy's adventure tale. And it's very clever in the way that it switches because the first half hour is Hugo, played by Asia Butterfield, who'd already shown his marvellous presence on screen in films like Son of Rambo and The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas. And he's the focus of our attention as he goes around the day-to-day -day routine of keeping the clocks running at the station whilst avoiding Inspector Gustav Dast, played by Sasha Baron Cohen, and watching the activities of all the regular frequenters of the station, the people who work in shops, etc., People like, you know, who's falling in love with who, who's talking to who, and every bit of routine. All the while, he's trying to steal odds and ends to create a little automaton that he's got from a notepad that his father passed to him before his father mysteriously vanished. And it feels like it's just going to be a film about him making this automaton. And then about 
half an hour in, it does the clever switch as you start to go, oh, there's more to this. There's a lot more to this. And then it starts to unravel the whole mystery of the owner of one of the shops, toy shops, Papa George, played by the marvellous, marvellous Ben Kingsley. He basically makes young Hugo work for him to pay off a debt. And it's as his stern ex- like exterior starts to open up and he befriends Hugo and start like you know, he starts to find out about his past that you get this complete depth of tale. And what a great tale. What an absolute marvellous tale. And, and that's exactly the same thing for me. And that's the point where it's it was a good film and an enjoyable film that suddenly became about something and, and had a lot of weight to it for what was sold as a, as a, as a children's adventure. Because initially, you, you, you kind of buy into it that it's a, this kid's adventure living in, in, in the clock tower in the railway station. Uh, and it's almost a little bit like a kid's version of Amelie for the for yeah. sort of first half. And then it, then you realise what this what this film's about and, and why Martin Scorsese made this film. Because it's about, it's a love letter to cinema and the early days of cinema. And then you go, I get it. I totally get it. And it elevates it from that level of being a good children's adventure story into, into something much more. I mean, even if you take away that like love of cinema aspect of the story, by the halfway point of the film, I was as involved in the day-to-day activities of the support cast as what Hugo was of their characters. Richard Griffiths and Francis de la Tour's um, flirtatious, slow-building romance. I mean, Richard Griffiths, this this is one of his last films before he sadly passed away. And what a great loss he was. Ray Winston's in there. Emily Mortimer is absolutely marvellous. Christopher Lee as the yeah. owner of the bookshop, another name that has, has left us a few years ago, that it was a sad loss. Jude Law playing his father. I mean, the, the support cast were marvellous and everyone was delightful in their parts. But seeing their activities on their day-to-day routines, even Sasha Baron Cohen, who is basically playing a role not too dissimilar to the parts he crops up in other films, yes. um, as the inspector who grabs orphans, locks them away and gets the police to come and pick them up. He could have just been a really hateful character. But you've got his wanting to strike up a rapport with Emily Mortimer's character aspect of it that is played on and then there's a a moment in the film when he reveals something key to why he approaches orphans on the streets that way that adds so many more layers to him as a simple character everything is just there's no character wasted there's no two-dimensional characters everyone's got layers towards them and everyone's got a reason for being within that framework and what a framework i mean the scenery is majestic this blur between cgi and the real world aspects it's extremely hard to detect. The The sweeping shots across Paris are absolutely, deliciously, almost dreamlike, yet hyper-real at the same time. It is It is a film painted on canvas, isn't it? Oh, it's a marvellous-looking film, and it's so well-played. Like I say, there's the letdown of Moretz, who just really feels out of sorts in everything, and I don't know what accent she was going for in this film, but it clearly wasn't her own. But every any small niggle, didn't upset the overall flow and I had such a good time watching it and it's one that I'm definitely going to be rewatching. And also, and this is this is going to probably shock you, I'm also tempted to watch the 3D version. I think you should because it was a film, I, I get your argument with 3D and my my side of that argument are, are the films that got pushed into 3D that shouldn't have been. You know, yeah. that, that have no place. All the Marvel films. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you can see, 
you can see in 3D films that weren't made as a 3D film that they, they had a little bit of an effect just to see it come out. This is a film that was designed for 3D. This was Scorsese always at the top of his game in, in everything that he does. Being in love with cinema, and it's almost, you know, to some extent, it's his story. He's that little boy, I think. It's a film that is designed for a 3D market and therefore uses it in a way that is creative and immersive. Good 3D is an immersive, an immersive experience. Lousy 3D is just something sticking out of the screen. The, the, you know, Avatar works in, in 3D because it immersed you into that world. And, and I think yeah. Hugo does that beautifully because it's a beautiful looking film and a beautifully designed film. It wasn't a big success when it came out. It, it made its money back, but only just. But critically, it did, it did incredibly well uh, and was very well regarded. Many seeing it as a, as a big change for Scorsese. This wasn't the sort of film that we, that we expect from him. But it is, at its heart, a children's adventure that is in love with cinema. And it's a film about cinema. And if you're a cinemaphile, then you should, why, why shouldn't you be if you come to, to listen to us rant every week? Then it's a film <laughs> that you have to see because it, it, it talks about you know, where we started. And it's a visually dramatic and mar a marvel of a film. It's interesting with it being like a fictional story inspired by real elements. How much historical fact is actually embedded within there? I mean, I went researching straight afterwards to see how much of, like, particularly the latter half of the film was actually true. And, yeah, there's a significant amount of it is actual factual. But there's also nice little historical nods and references, uh, even just images. You've got, like, the, the, the famous Montparnasse derailment from 1800s. Yes. With, which is the famous picture of the train that had crashed all the way through the station and was like down the wall embedded into the street. There's a moment in the film where that is a key scene. And even though it's set way after it, there's a reason why it's, um, it's there as a key scene. And it, as, as it was built into that scene, I was like, they're going to do it, they're going to do it. And I was like, oh, they did it. And it's such a marvellous little nod. And there's so many little touches throughout it, visually and creatively. Absolutely, absolute pleasure of a film, not just for film lovers, but for historians as well. You've made me want to see it again, actually, Andy. I, I've only <laughs> seen it the once. I, you know, I think because I went in not knowing what to expect, I yeah. didn't go in with a great deal of, of anticipation for it. I went because it was a Scorsese film. I think it's right for me to go back and watch it. It's one you could probably dissect each time that you watch it and find something new, little more little nuggets in there. Okay, so that was Hugo. And keeping things light, for next week, your mission, if you choose to accept it, is, and I've given this a lot of thought because, you know, we've there's a, there's a lot more darker films on the list. And I think we did Mystic River last week. And I think that should be as dark as we go for now. I'm going to give you <laughs> In the Loop because, A, it's very funny. It's topical to a degree. Yeah. And it'll give you a good reason to go on to Netflix and watch the thick of it as well. Excellent. So you've got a heck of a lot of viewing to do between now and now and next week. Fantastic. Okay, so we've not had films to review uh, in the cinema. I guess we, we're missing out on a whole whole range of films on Netflix. But what we have been doing is been taking a deep dive into some of the films that we consider classics uh, and getting under the skin, digging deep. See where I'm going with this one. <laughs> I see where you're going. Oh, it's, it's written all over my face. <laughs> this is a monster movie from 1990. When I say a monster movie, it's a kind of horror, horror comedy directed by Ron Underwood. It's a film that, hey, if you've not seen it, you're missing out. And if you have seen it, 
it just makes you smile like a silly child. And that film is Tremors. Perfection, a scorched outpost in the middle of nowhere. You know how close I am to leaving this place right now? How close? Maybe that's why Val and Earl decided to leave town. That's Edgar Deans. They just picked the wrong day to do it. Jeez. You guys better get the hell out of here. There's a killer on the loose. Who could be doing it? Is that a snake? I'll give you boys $5 for this. 20. That's how they get you. They're under the ground. How could they eat a whole station wagon? But where do they come from? I vote for outer space. No way these are local boys. You see, they're headed right for us. No Richter scale can measure it. They're coming! No scientist can explain it. Bert, they're under the ground. You didn't get penetration even with the alpha gun. Run, run! And no one knows what to call it. Mega worms or suckers or... Or suckoids. Now, this valley is just one long smorgasbord. Now, it's up to Val and Earl to save the world. That's one big mother. Who died and made you Einstein? And they know just what to do. Flip for it. Damn. Kevin Bacon. Fred Ward. Tremors. Can you believe this film is 30 years old? I saw it in the cinema when it came out, and uh, it, was, it was a half-empty cinema. It, it wasn't yeah. generating much word of mouth at that particular point, but I think it's one of those films that people have grown to love, because why wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, it, it didn't perform well at the cinemas, but it built up a huge following on VHS and home release. Um, I saw it at the cinema, like you, the cinema was pretty much empty, uh, but... As soon as it came out on VHS, I bought it because I wanted to watch it again and again and again. I introduced it at that point to quite a few other people who grew to love it as well. Uh, it's it's a great homage to B-movies. Plotline is a small little town called Perfection, which has a, a population of 14 people, finds itself under attack by strange creatures under the ground. That is classic 50s sci-fi kind of like desert location, giant ants kind of story, but this time under the ground apparently um the creators of the franchise uh, wilson and maddock came up with the idea when they used to work on navy educational videos they were up on a large boulder one day and pondered what if something wouldn't let us off this rock and started penning out an idea for a film called land sharks i mean basically a giant big game of floor is lava would have took place <laughs> to try and get off which happens about halfway through the movie and from that they just kept growing the idea and these were the guys who gave us the short circuit script and when that did well for them and got their name out there, that gave them the motivation to go, okay, right, let's get this film down. And then in 1990, they managed to get it made. It starred Kevin Bacon, Fred Ward, uh, Michael Gross, Reba McIntyre. And it's one of those films that, as you said, uh, it didn't necessarily find its audience in the cinema, but it, it, with a burgeoning video market, that's where it came to life. That's where people discovered it and realised that it was just great, silly fun. And it's great, silly fun because and it does that thing where where the combination shouldn't shouldn't always work, which is horror and comedy. When it works great, you get films like Tremors, you get films like uh, American Werewolf in London, 
where you want to laugh and you're scared at the same time. It's, yeah. it's, it's a it's a subgenre which which is open to fail, but but Tremors gets it right. Why do you think it, it does get it right? It gets it right. I mean, the casting more than anything. I mean, Kevin Bacon was inspired casting. I mean, he was he was on a roll at that point in time, so he was the biggest name in this film. But he was still taking smaller roles and not letting his ego take over. And his buddy routine with Fred Ward's Earl. That starts the film off and their banter and bickering and their like rock, paper, scissors with the rules constantly changing becomes like a key little like gag as it runs on. From that instant connection, you then like are introduced to like the more absurd characters like Michael Gross's Burt Gummer as the survivalist with a huge obsession with heavy weaponry. He, I mean, he'd come from a successful run on the sitcom Family Ties. And so this was his breakout film role. And you straight away take to him as a rather bizarre character. And you get a love for him, even though he's a bit weird. All the characters are so well cast that it just helps you draw yourself in to the setting and enjoy the setting that they're in, even without the monsters under the ground, which kudos to the design team for the monsters because they are well, well thought out monsters. You see, that's why I think it works. Yes, I, I totally agree with you that, uh, that Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon are, are, are just hugely affable. They're, they're very, very likable characters. And you, and you buy into their relationship, and, and therefore you buy into their window into the world. But it's the fact that they treat the monsters as monsters. They they don't laugh at the monsters. They are yeah. dangerous. Uh, they have uh, they've got that sense of threat to them. They are well designed, not only good looking, but but their motivation creatures work really really well. So you know, as I said before, the two tropes that often don't work are, are horror and comedy because. I think their attendance is slant either side and it never becomes gross out horror. It never becomes gross out comedy. They walk the line perfectly and, and they never miss the landing on it. Everything combines perfectly to produce a homage to 50s and 60s horror movies. Apparently, um, it was a friend of either Wilson's or Maddox, who was a biologist who helped design the creature. Like graboids, thinking about like, well, okay, called graboids. graboids that they called them in the film. Yeah, it, it was a creature that had to bury through the ground. So how does that work? Well, the nose section is kind of like a, a bone shell. But, and it, you know, you look at like films like Dune, they had a similar kind of design for them. But then how does it grab people? How, you know, does it just lunge off? Well, no, sometimes it might have to probe. So it's got these little tentacles that come out of the mouth and grab, like taste around. It's underground, so it doesn't need to see. So it takes the like idea from moles that they don't actually see. They use like other ways of feeling things. It feels um, vibrations through the ground, and that's how it hunts. So everything was thought through from a biologist's point of view to make a creature that you actually, you can actually believe is real. And yeah, the practical effects for it were fantastic. And sometimes looking like yeah, it could have been really cheesy, but played really well. Absolutely great design. Another monster movie that doesn't reveal the monster too early because a lot of the times you just see things disappearing into the ground, puffs of dust coming up. Uh, or even the marvellous sequence with the car getting swallowed into the ground that you don't really see anything except for a long shot with the headlights rising up towards the sky. So we said this film didn't really find its audience initially, but what it did do is it spawned several sequels. franchise. And I've not seen the the follow-ups because I thought too much of a great standalone film that Tremors was. It it didn't need sequels, and especially with the fact that Kevin Bacon didn't come back for, for Tremors 2 Aftershocks. That came out in 96. The only reason he didn't come back, apparently, because he stated that on the on shooting 
Tremors, it was the single most fun time he's ever had making a movie. And he would have been happy to have returned to the role for the second film. However, there was a film called Apollo 13 that he was signed up for that would have clashed with the production for it. So he had to drop out. Oh, that's a shame. I didn't know that. Which you can see when you watch Aftershocks because there's a new character introduced to be a buddy towards uh, Earl. And they even play the rock, paper, scissors like aspect. All the elements that you see that would have been his character have been put to this one. However, they do like have fun playing it that like Earl suddenly does rock, paper, scissors and this new one looks at him like, what are you doing? <laughs> and so they play on the whole idea that he's trying to build up this relationship with a new buddy, but this new buddy hasn't got that years of working together, so doesn't know them. After that second film, Fred Ward didn't come back from that point onwards, but Michael Gross as Bert became the key focus for each of the films going forward. So there was Tremors 3, Back to Perfection, and then... Yeah, that was a backdoor pilot for the TV series that came out in 2003. It was returned it back to the town of Perfection. It introduced quite a few of the original characters. The girl who played Mindy, she returned, now all grown up, as did the the guy, the guy who played the kid, the, the young lad. And then there was Tremors 4 as well. Legend Begins, a prequel. Tremors 2, I enjoy as a sequel. It's not as good as the original. It develops the Graboid further. The, the Graboids eventually get to a stage where they basically they split open and one or two screechers come out, which are more like Velociraptor kind of creatures. Tremors 3 then introduce that if they're left to gestate for longer, they evolve again into a flying creature, which the idea being that it would then fly to a, a different location before that one lays an egg to create new graboids. And so that's how it propagates. It's a it's a three-stage thing, similar to like the alien in the Aliens films. It's got this whole cycle of how to evolve itself into different areas. So they grew the whole thing. However, the third film is a bit weak. Right. But the fourth film, which went back to the Wild West, I've got a lot of love for. It has a lot of fun with it. And Wilson, it, Maddock and Underwood had some connection with, with the three sequels and then it went off on one with tremors five bloodlines uh tremors a cold day in hell in 2018 there was uh supposed to be another direct to uh, video sequel called tremors island fury which was supposed to be re yep. released this year and then there was a tremors tv series and you thought well is it going to end there the recent films that wilson and maddock have had nothing to do with have been bad I know nothing about I didn't know it had carried on for that long, to be perfectly honest. They have now become akin to Sharknado in that they are really cheap, low-budget kind of films. However, the Tremors franchise shouldn't be as tongue-in-cheek as Sharknado. It should be a bit more semi-serious with mild comedy. But it, no, they're not worth checking, even though Michael Gross is still involved in them. The series that got a pilot that we never got to see and then was cancelled and the rug pulled from sci-fi, that would have been the proper sequel to the original film because Kevin Bacon was returning and apparently he really loved the script and he was happy to return for it. Maybe one day we'll get to see what that pilot looked like. All that we had was a trailer which looked amazing and that was the original creators bringing it back to what they wanted it to be. Will we see it again? I, th I think that we'll, we'll see the Tremors franchise come back. I know that Wilson and Maddock have said that they've got ideas of where they want to take it and if they can get some funding, they'll be well up for it so let's let's give some hope that someone like netflix picks it up 
Well, it's not the first time that a TV series uh, has been spawned from a, a successful movie. And in fact, some movies that aren't that successful. And we talked about, about MASH earlier. Yep. There's probably more, and I, in a little bit of research that I did, there's probably more out there than I, I ever thought there was. I could, I could name several. I mean, apart from sort of animated series like there was a, a, a Back to the Future series. We, we mentioned a Bill and Ted series a few weeks ago. Uh, did you know yeah. that there was a Blazing Saddles TV series? I had heard about that, yeah. It's terrible. I, I watched yeah. it so you don't have to. <laughs> and apparently the story with that is... Black Bart, wasn't it? Black Bart, and it carried on the adventures of the Black Bart character. It's a, um, it was made with the idea that it would never, ever be seen because it was to do with contractual reasons with Mel Brooks. Uh, and it's probably for the best that it was never seen. I saw the pilot and the pilot's bad enough. And if you want to see the pilot, it is available on the uh, Blu-ray for, for Blazing Saddles. Now, some have worked really, really well and expanded on the on the notion of what the film's about. Of course, MASH being the, probably the most famous of that. And there are some which have, which have failed miserably. Are there any particular, and I asked you to think about this last week, any particular great... Um, TV series based on movies that, that you can think of, Andy? The, the obvious ones are things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which took that failed film and gave Joss Whedon a chance to deliver exactly what he wanted it to be like. And yeah, it's iconic. It's got some great moments in the fantastic series. But yeah, we could talk about like all of them. We could talk about Fargo, which takes the themes of the film, but does its own thing with slight links towards the film in different timelines. You've got the Highlander TV series, which wasn't a great example, but spawned a couple of seasons. My personal recent favourites, and one of them is still running at the moment and getting close to the final episode, and that's Snowpiercer, which is doing its own thing whilst also adapting the same source material. But one which I am waiting for season three to start, when it eventually drops, I'm going to be happy as Larry, is Cobra Kai which I think is one of the best examples of how to do a sequel to something from 30 years ago with the same cast and make it have a reason for existing. Have you had a chance to see any of Cobra Kai? I've not. I've, I've, I've never, was never that much of a fan of Karate Kid. And I, and I think one of those elements are, is when you look at a TV series, they have to take the intention of what that, that movie was about, you know, the, the core idea. So, for instance, when they did MASH, for instance, they took the, the core idea of, of those characters, you know, the Korean War, the hospital, and then then developed them further and you got to know the characters. So the main idea never changed. It was it was how they developed it for, uh, forward. See, for me, I think Fargo is, is the perfect example of honouring what the movie did and yet going out and doing doing something incredibly different but keeping that core that this is based on a, on, a, on a true story and exploring crimes around that area and, and being incredibly creative with it. But, there, you know, the, for every, every Fargo, there's a uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. To just get back to Cobra Kai, what works with that is that, I mean, I was, I'm the same as you, that I was never that bothered with the Karate Kid films, but I watched Cobra Kai and then went back and rewatched the first Karate Kid film from a whole different perspective because it takes a whole new approach. It makes you reevaluate the story of um, Karate Kid in a slightly different way. And seeing these same characters as adults with their roles more or less flipped and reversed is what makes it work as its own series. The, the, the kid who was the bad, the bad kid in the Karate Kid film is now the main protagonist in this series. And you're starting to get to know everything that went wrong with his life as a result of that film. 
and how he wants to make things better. Marvellous portrayal. Well worth checking out. I mean, even, like I say, I, I was never that enamoured with the original film. But I watched Cobra Kai just out of nostalgia factor, but found myself connecting with a completely different story than what I was expecting. And that's what a series should do when it updates it, but keeps the same timeline. You've got film, you've got TV series like Westworld that have taken the concept and redeveloped them in a different way. Absolutely love Westworld, even though you have to watch every season at least twice in order to understand them. Uh, I mean, you could go back to When the Planet of the Apes, live action TV series from when we were kids. Yeah, which I've got a lot of love for. Even things like Voice to the Bottom of the Sea started out yeah, oh, as, as a movie. The, the, there's a blast from the past, and now I'm going to be digging through like all my DVDs and finding all the old seasons. You've even got short-lived series that never quite found the audience that they deserved, such as my favourite sequel to Terminator 2, Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles. No, i give you that one. Two seasons which picked up the storyline after Judgment Day and then flipped and played about with the concept. And it just never found an audience. It was good that Fox gave it that second season to try to get an audience to see if, like, you know, the reruns of the first season would have picked up more people. But people just didn't latch onto it until after it got cancelled. That was a series that I would have loved to have seen develop. I'll give you The Exorcist. I don't know if you ever saw The Exorcist TV series. That worked as a sequel to, to the movie and developed its own style as well. Uh, lasted two seasons. Uh, really scary in places, very, very well done, explored the mythos of, of, of the original film, and it was very well done and, and very well written. It's a shame that it, it never got a chance to get to uh, get to three series. But for every every good one, there's been some, some really poor ones as well. So yeah. do you remember from my list, Casablanca TV series starring David Saul? Oh, wasn't, hasn't there been two? There was one back in the 50s and then one in the 80s. Yes. Yes, it was. Yes. Uh, I think I've had the misfortune of catching some one of the 80s ones. There was a TV offshoot of Broken Arrow, the John Woo film. Why? <laughs> for the best. Uh, the Crow, Stairway to Heaven. Oh, the yeah, Stairway to Heaven. I mean, the, the Crow franchise itself, as the films went on, got progressively worse and worse. We had Damien, an offshoot of The Omen. Yep. There was La Femme Nikita, which has been two two versions of that. Yep. There were films that were inspired by movies, like The Dukes of Hazard was uh, inspired from a film called Moonrunners. Flipper, there you go. That was based on originally. Oh, I, remember, I remember Flipper from my childhood. Freebie and the Bean, which was uh, a loose adaptation of the series Freebie and the Bean. Good stuff like Friday Night Lights. Look, at the, you've got the Stargate franchise as well, which I think successfully managed to make that leap across the TV format and become its own entity at the same time. A bit like Hannibal. Oh, Hannibal is is possibly one of the best examples of a readaptation of something that far exceeds the source material, either book or film that came before it. And talking of disappointments, the Lethal Weapon TV series. D don't even start me on that one. Logan's Run. You remember that from Saturday Tea Times <laughs> as a kid? I, I rewatched them a few years ago. They're not great, are they? They're not good. <laughs> They're not good. The Magnificent Seven. Paper Moon, which was then fantastic vehicle for Jodie Foster, a very young Jodie Foster, uh, that was a, a worthy, didn't last very long, but a really worthy follow-on to the brilliant movie. Parenthood, which there's been two uh, two versions of that, one that's still, I believe, running now. Yep. Private Benjamin. Rush Hour, which I never saw as a, as a TV series. The Purge. School of Rock. Alien Nation. See, that worked because that, again... That, that, that worked well for the um, the buddy cop format in it, a serialised aspect. In, in um, Ash versus Evil Dead is a great example of the past few years where it actually picked up 
what people have been clamoring for ever since Army of Darkness, a proper sequel to Ash's story. And we got a few seasons out of it. And currently our favorite that's running right now, What We Do in the Shadows. And that is a series that is rapidly becoming even better than the film. Again, and takes, that's saying something. Again, takes the idea, but but expands it and, and, and doesn't copy it too much and gives it its own its own identity. If you've not seen What We Do in the Shadows, either the film or the TV series, then you're missing out. Both both <laughs> well worth a watch. Both regularly rewatched by me. And that's it for another week. Um, before we go, Andy and I always like to take a look at what we've been uh, enjoying over the last week, whether that be a book, a film, a game, anything at all. Andy, what have you got as your neat thing for this week? Well, before I talk about this week's neat thing, let me just uh, say, you know that Jew on Origins? Yeah. Oh, yes. It was pretty good. Is it? If you don't feel as though... It's pretty good. Oh, oh no. And, and, it, and it leaves it hanging at the end of the season. So, oh, they need season two. I need season two in my life now. Uh, but anyway, this week... Now, this is something that's already finished its first season run. But for those who didn't get to see them, Josh Gad's Reunited Apart on YouTube is an absolute joy. This is Josh Gad on Zoom with casts from iconic films from the 80s, all getting back together on a Zoom chat and talking through behind-the-scenes aspects, um, sharing little jokes and stories, and also like re-enacting some of the lines from their films. And they are so much fun to watch. He's done Back to the Future, Ghostbusters, Ferris Bueller, Splash, The Goonies, and Lord of the Rings. If you've not seen them, get onto YouTube, just do a search for Reunited Apart and watch them all. You will plough through them all in a matter of a couple of hours and you will just be sat there with a big smile on your face as the way that he does them, he always introduces one person first and then bit by bit other people join in and you feel your beaming smile getting wider and wider and wider. And this is one of the great examples of how isolation has brought some great creative entertainment at the same time. Hopefully we're going to get a season two of this and I hope he stays with the Zoom format and doesn't try to do it in a studio. I think it works perfectly with the Zoom format and it means that they can all take a a few minutes out of their day on one day without having to travel to a location, etc. to do it. Looking forward to seeing what he does going forwards because he's already picked the main icons from the 80s. It's one of those big successes, isn't it, that's... That wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the pandemic. And the thing is, Josh, I've got I've not got a lot of love for Josh Gad. When he pops up on a film, he can kind of irritate. But he's got a charm in his hosting of this that has made me reevaluate him and made me go, oh, you know what? I'm not opposed to him. So he, he's marvellous as hosting it. He's got such enthusiasm for what he's doing. And he's got such a good rapport with the people who he's inviting onto it. So I'm, I'm well up for watching any more of the stuff that he does. I've not seen it yet, but there was a, a reunion for Princess Bride. I don't think it's one of Joss Gad's. I think it's a, a project by Jason Reitman to sort of do a, a, a bit of a remake. You've got, you've got Rob Rayner in it. And it was the last appearance by Carl Rayner. It's on my list of things I really need to watch over the next few weeks. But it's such a... These reunions are such a simple idea. And as I said, they wouldn't have been born any other way unless it's the pandemic. And I think that's probably been one of the biggest successes that, that's come out of it. Because, hey, you don't even have to leave your house to, to take part in it and do it. My neat thing is a little bit more serious. Um, again, it's down to what's happening in the world right now. And that's the hashtag, let the music play. For those who know me, you know, I'm a musician as well. Um, UK live music has been one of the biggest 
uh, biggest hits during the during the pandemic. You know, venues are closing, bands aren't allowed to play. Not only do, do you, does this affect the big bands, it affects affects uh, street level bands and all the people who are there connected to, to the music industry in some way, whether that's that's crews, you know, video crews like like the job that I do. Um, it, it's really hit hard. Other countries such as Germany and Australia uh, have had uh, have had government help. I know that the Chancellor in the UK has pledged some money, but it's not enough to keep premises open because once music venues go, they're gone. They won't be coming back in any shape. Uh, it's, it's hard enough to keep um, keep music venues going. But if you start to lose that, that grassroots level for, for, for local artists, then it's, it will always have a knock-on effect because the local artists are, are the, the bands or, or singers of tomorrow that you're going to enjoy. Yeah. So there's a, a webpage, uh, ukmusic.org. Please sign up to pledge your, your support for, for local venues because it's really, really important. And if you're a musician, then you'll already know of the hashtag, let the music play. So a little bit more serious, but very, very important. If you want, as much as it is about film, it's about popular culture and music is as much a part of the popular culture as, as film is for on this show. Yeah. And that's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, we'll be back next week, same time, same channel, somewhere in the ether to bring you the latest film news and our deep dive. Andy, it's been a pleasure as always. And you. But remember, you broke into the wrong goddamn rec room, didn't you? You bastards. Thank you.